Jeffrey, welcome back to Nightfalls. Come settle in for tonight's soothing bedtime story. As always, don't worry if you fall asleep before the end. You can drift off whenever you're ready. Come get settled in by the fire for another classic tale. Tonight, we sail the tropical 19th century seas in search of history's most famous whale. Stretch out your sea legs and step aboard the ship with Captain Ahab in an adventurous passage to another place and time. Before we begin, here's a quick word from our valued sponsors who make this free content possible. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For the best way to fall asleep with Nightfalls, you can now become a premium supporter. Enjoy the entire back catalogue of Nightfalls classics, all with a rich, immersive and totally ad-free experience. If you love falling asleep to Nightfalls, Nightfalls Premium will elevate your sleep while helping to support myself and the team. We love creating Nightfalls, but without supporters, it wouldn't be possible. Join Nightfalls Premium today in just two taps on both Apple Podcasts or via the Supercast link found in the show notes for all other podcast players. Your sleep will thank you for it, and so will I. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you've been feeling overwhelmed with anxiety lately, try listening to a guided meditation on the Meditation for Anxiety podcast. Meditation is a proven natural way to help you calm down and dissolve stress so you can feel lighter and happier. So subscribe for free today to the Meditation for Anxiety podcast by searching for Meditation for Anxiety on your favorite podcast player. Call me Ishmael. Some years ago, never mind how long precisely, having little or no money in my purse, and nothing particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail about a little and see the watery part of the world. It is a way I have of regulating the circulation. Whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul, 
I count it high time to get to sea as soon as I can. I quietly take to the ship. There is nothing surprising in this. If they but knew it, almost all men in their degree, some time or other, cherish very nearly the same feelings towards the ocean with me. There now is your insular city of the Manhattos, belted around by wharves as isles by coral reefs. Commerce surrounds it with her surf. Right and left, the streets take you waterward. Its extreme downtown is the Battery, where the noble mole is washed by waves and cooled by breezes. Look at the crowds of water gazers there. Feel the winds of the nearby waters brush freshly upon your rugged face and taste the salty aromas with your chapped lips. Circumambulate the city of a dreamy afternoon. Go from Corlear's Hook to Conti's Slip and from thence by Whitehall northward. What do you see? Posted like silent sentinels all around the town, stand thousands upon thousands of mortal men fixed in ocean reveries. Some leaning against the spiles, some seated upon the pier heads, some looking over the bulwarks of ships from China, some high aloft in the rigging, as if striving to get a still better seaward peep. But these are all landsmen. They spend weekdays pent up in lath and plaster, tied to counters, nailed to benches, clinched to desks. How then is this? Are the green fields gone? What do they hear? But look, here come more crowds, pacing straight for the water and seemingly bound for a dive. Strange. Nothing will content them but the extremest limit of the land. Loitering under the shady lee of yonder warehouses will not suffice. No, they must get just as nigh the water as they possibly can without falling in. And there they stand, miles of them, leagues Inlanders all, they come from lanes and alleys, streets and avenues, north, east, south and west. Yet here they all unite. Tell me, does the magnetic virtue of the needles of the compass of all those ships attract them thither? Once more... Say you are in the country, in some high land of lakes. Take almost any path you please, and ten to one it carries you down in a dale and leaves you there by a pool in the stream. There is a magic in it. Let the most absent-minded of men be plunged in his deepest reveries. Stand that man on his legs, set his feet a-going, and he will infallibly lead you to water, if water there be in all that region. Up from yonder cottage goes a sleepy smoke. 
deep into distant woodlands winds a mazy way, reaching to overlapping spurs of mountains bathed in their hillside blue. But though the picture lies thus tranced, and though this pine tree shakes down its sighs like leaves upon the shepherd's head, yet all were vain unless the shepherd's eye were fixed upon the magic stream before him. Why is almost every robust, healthy boy with a robust, healthy soul in him, at some time or other, crazy to go to sea? Why, upon your first voyage as a passenger, did you yourself feel such a mystical vibration when first told that you and your ship were now out of sight of land? Why did the old Persians hold the sea holy? Why did the Greeks give it a separate deity and own brother of Jove? Surely all this is not without meaning. And still deeper the meaning of that story of Narcissus, who, because he could not grasp the tormenting, mild image he saw in the fountain, plunged into it and was drowned. But that same image we ourselves see in all rivers and oceans. It is the image of the ungraspable phantom of life. This is the key to it all. Now, when I say that I am in a habit of going to sea whenever I begin to grow hazy about the eyes, I do not mean to have it inferred that I ever go to sea as a passenger. For to go as a passenger you must needs have a purse, and a purse is but a rag unless you have something in it. Besides, passengers get seasick, grow quarrelsome, don't sleep of nights, and do not enjoy themselves much as a general thing. No, I never go as a passenger. Nor, though I am something of a salt, do I ever go to sea as a commodore, or a captain, or a cook. I abandon the glory and distinction of such offices to those who like them. As for going as cook, I never fancied broiling fowls. Though once broiled, judiciously buttered, salted, and peppered, there is no one who will speak more reverentially of a broiled fowl than I will. Now, when I go to sea, I go as a simple sailor, right before the mast, plumb down into the forecastle, aloft there to the royal masthead. True, they rather order me about some and make me jump from spar to spar, like a grasshopper in a may meadow. And at first, this sort of thing is unpleasant enough. The transition is a keen one, I assure you, from a schoolmaster to a sailor, and requires a strong decoction of Seneca and the Stoics to enable you to grin and bear it. But even this wears off in time. I always go to sea as a sailor, because of the wholesome exercise and pure air of the forecastle deck. For as in this world, 
headwinds are far more prevalent than winds from astern. So, for the most part, the Commodore in the quarterdeck gets his atmosphere at second hand from the sailors on the forecastle. He thinks he breathes it first, but not so. But wherefore it was that, after having repeatedly smelled the sea as a merchant sailor, I should now take it into my head to go on a whaling voyage. Chief among these motives was the overwhelming idea of the great whale himself. Such a mysterious creature roused all my curiosity. Then the wild and distant seas where he rolled his island bulk, the undeliverable, nameless perils of the whale. These sights and sounds helped to sway me to my wish. I love to sail forbidden seas and land on barbarous coasts. It is my joy to witness the myriad forms of clouds sweeping across the clear blue, to feel the dampness of a warm tropical storm on my skin before even the first peal of thunder can be heard. So I stuffed a shirt or two into my old carpet bag, tucked it under my arm, and started for Cape Horn and the Pacific. Quitting the good city of Manhattan, I duly arrived in New Bedford. It was a Saturday night in December. Much was I disappointed upon learning that the little packet for Nantucket had already sailed, and that no way of reaching that place would offer till the following Monday. My mind was made up to sail in no other than an Nantucket craft. There was a fine, boisterous something about everything concerned with that famous old island, which amazingly pleased me. Now having a night, a day and still another night following before me in New Bedford, ere I could embark for my destined port, it became a matter of concernment where I was to eat and sleep meanwhile. It was a very dubious-looking, nay, a very dark and dismal night, bitingly cold and cheerless. I knew no one in the place, With anxious grapnels I had sounded my pocket and only brought up a few pieces of silver. So, wherever you go, Ishmael, said I to myself as I stood in the middle of a dreary street shouldering my bag, wherever in your wisdom you may conclude to lodge for the night, my dear Ishmael, be sure to inquire the price and don't be too particular. With halting steps I paced the streets and passed the sign of the crossed harpoons. It looked too expensive and jolly there. Further on, from the bright red windows of the Swordfish Inn, there came such fervent rays that it seemed to have melted the packed snow and ice from before the house. For everywhere else the congealed frost lay ten inches thick in a hard, asphaltic pavement. Rather weary for me, when I struck my foot against the flinty projections, 
because from hard, remorseless service the soles of my boots were in a most miserable plight. Too expensive and jolly again, thought I, pausing one moment to watch the broad glare in the street and hear the sounds of the tinkling glasses within. But go on, Ishmael, said I at last. Don't you hear? Get away from before the door. Your patched boots are stopping the way. So on I went. I now by instinct followed the streets that took me waterward, for there, doubtless, were the cheapest, if not the cheeriest inns. Moving on, I came at last to a dim sort of light not far from the docks, and heard a forlorn creaking in the air, and looking up saw a swinging sign over the door. It had a white painting upon it, faintly representing a tall straight jet of misty spray, and these words underneath, the spouter in. The light looked dim, and the place looked quiet enough. The dilapidated little wooden house itself looked as if it might have been carted here from the ruins of some burnt district. The swinging sign had a poverty-stricken sort of creak to it. I thought that here was the very spot for cheap lodgings and the best of pea coffee. It was a strange sort of place, a gable-ended old house leaning over. We are going a-wailing, I thought to myself. Scraping the ice from my frosted feet, I entered the house to see what sort of a place this spouter may be. Following a night of much activity, being mostly kept awake by the coming and going of the mariners' boots as they arrived from their boats in disjoined intervals, I awoke from my bed. I dressed and followed the sound of the gulls to the dock. I spent a while looking about the administrative area for someone having authority in order to propose myself as a candidate for the whaling voyage that had brought me henceforth. At first I saw nobody, but I could not well overlook a strange sort of tent, or rather wigwam, pitched a little behind the main mast of a ship named the Pequod. It seemed only a temporary structure used in port. It was of a conical shape, some ten feet high, consisting of the long, huge slabs of limber blackbone taken from the jaws of a right whale. A triangular opening faced towards the bows of the ship, so that the insider commanded a complete view forward. And, half concealed in this odd tenement, I at length found one who by his aspect seemed to have authority, one who was apparently now enjoying respite from the burden of command. He was seated on an old-fashioned oaken chair, wriggling all over with curious carving. The bottom formed a stout interlacing of the same elastic stuff of which the wigwam was constructed, 
There was nothing so very particular, perhaps, about the appearance of the elderly man I saw. He was dark-skinned and brawny, like most old seamen, and heavily rolled up in blue pilot cloth. Is this the captain of the Pequod? said I, advancing to the door of the tent. Supposing it be the captain of the Pequod, what dost thou want of him? he demanded. I further explained my intention to join as a shipmate and protested much innocence of being associated with the merchant service. Look ye now, young man, thy lungs are a sort of soft, d'ye see? said the man. That does not talk shark a bit. Sure you've been to sea before now, sure of that. I have given thee a hint about what whaling is. Do ye yet feel inclined for it? I do, sir. Seated on the transom was what seemed to be a most uncommon and surprising figure. Turned out to be Captain Bildad, who, along with the aforementioned Captain Peleg, was one of the largest owners of the vessel. Like Captain Peleg, Captain Bildad was a well-to-do retired whaleman. Without much time passing, I completed the administrative duties and signed on as a sailor on the Pequod. A day or two passed, and there was great activity aboard the Pequod. Not only were the old sails being mended, but new sails were coming on board, and bolts of canvas and coils of rigging. In short, everything betokened that the ship's preparations were hurrying to a close. Captain Peleg seldom or never went ashore, but sat in his wigwam, keeping a sharp lookout upon the hands. Bildad did all the purchasing and providing at the stores, and the men employed in the hold and on the rigging were working till long after nightfall. Everyone knows what a multitude of things are indispensable to the business of housekeeping. Beds, saucepans, knives and forks, shovels and tongs, napkins, nutcrackers and what not. Just so with whaling, which necessities a three years' housekeeping upon the wide ocean, far from all grocers, costermongers, doctors, bakers and bankers? And this also holds true of merchant vessels, yet not by any means to the same extent as with whalemen. At the period of our arrival at the island, the heaviest storage of the Pequod had been almost completed, comprising her beef, bread, water, fuel, and iron hoops and staves. But, as before hinted, for some time there was a continual fetching and carrying on board of diverse odds and ends of things, both large and small. During these days of preparation, I often visited the craft. At last it was given out that sometime next day, the ship would certainly sail. So, next morning, I took a very early start. It was nearly six o'clock, but only grey and perfect misty dawn when we drew nigh the wharf. At last, stepping on board the Pequod, I found everything in profound quiet, not a soul moving. 
the cabin entrance was locked within. The hatches were all on and lumbered with coils of rigging. Going forward to the forecastle, I found the slide of the scuttle open. Seeing a light, I went down and found only an old rigger there, wrapped in a tattered pea jacket. He was thrown at whole length upon two chests, his face downwards and enclosed in his folded arms. The profoundest slumber slept upon him. At last the anchor was up, the sails were set, and off we glided. It was a short, cold Christmas. As the short northern day merged into night, we found ourselves almost broad upon the wintry ocean, whose freezing spray cased us in ice as in polished armour. The long rows of teeth on the bulwarks glistened in the moonlight, like the white ivory tusks of some huge elephant, vast, curving icicles depended from the bows. The chief mate of the Pequod was Starbuck, a native of Nantucket. He was a long, earnest man, and though born on an icy coast, seemed well adapted to endure hot latitudes, his flesh being hard as twice-baked biscuit. Stubb was the second mate. He was a native of Cape Cod, and hence, according to local usage, was called a Cape Cod man. A happy-go-lucky, neither craven nor valiant, taking perils as they came with an indifferent air. And while he was engaged in the most imminent crisis of the chase, he would be seen toiling away, calm and collected as a journeyman joiner engaged for the year. The third mate was Flask, a native of Tisbury. These three maids, Starbuck, Stubb and Flask, were momentous men. For several days after leaving Nantucket, nothing above hatches was seen of Captain Ahab, whose presence until this moment had preceded him only by rumour. Every time I ascended to the deck from my watches below, I instantly gazed aft to mark if any strange face were visible. So it was that as I levelled my glance towards the taffrail on the fourth day, foreboding shivers ran over me. Reality outran apprehension. Captain Ahab stood upon his quarter-deck. I was struck with the singular posture he maintained. Upon each side of the Pequod's quarter-deck, and pretty close to the mizzen shrouds, there was an auger hole bored about half an inch or so into the plank. His bone legs steadied in that hole, one arm elevated and holding by a shroud. Captain Ahab stood tall, looking straight out beyond the ship's ever-pitching prow. There was an infinity of firmest fortitude, a determinate, unsurrenderable willfulness in the fixed and fearless forward dedication of that glance. Not a word he spoke, nor did his officers say aught to him. 
Nevertheless, ere long, the warm, warbling persuasiveness of the pleasant holiday weather seemed gradually to charm him from his mood. For, as when April and May trip home to the wintry woods, even the barest, ruggedest, most thunder-cloven old oak will send forth some few green sprouts. So Ahab did a little respond to the playful allurings of that warm summer air. More than once did he put forth the faint blossom of a look, which, in any other man, would have soon flowered out in a smile. Already we are boldly launched upon the deep, but soon we shall be lost in its unshored, harbourless immensities. Ere that come to pass, ere the Pequod's weedy hull rolls side by side with the barnacled hulls of the Leviathan, at the outset it is but well to attend to a matter almost indispensable to a thorough appreciative understanding of the more special Leviathanic revelations and illusions of all sorts which are to follow. It is some systemized exhibition of the whale in his broad genera that I would now fain put before you, yet is it no easy task. The classification of the constituents of a chaos, nothing less is here essayed. Listen to what the best and latest authorities have laid down. No branch of zoology is more involved as that which is entitled cetology, says Captain Scoresby, A.D. 1820. It is not my intention, were it in my power, to enter into the inquiry as to the true method of dividing the cetacea into groups and families, Utter confusion exists among the historians of this animal. Sperm whale, says Surgeon Beale, A.D. 1839. Unfitness to pursue our research in the unfathomable waters, impenetrable veil covering our knowledge of the cetacea, the field strewn with thorns, all these incomplete indications but serve to torture us naturalists. Thus speak of the whale, the great Cuvier, and John Hunter, and Lesson, those lights of zoology and anatomy. Nevertheless, though of real knowledge there be little, yet of books there are a plenty, and so in some small degree with cetology or the science of whales. Many are the men, small and great, old and new, landsmen and seamen, who have, at large or in little, written of the whale. Run over a few. The authors of the Bible, Aristotle, Pliny, Aldrovandi, Sir Thomas Brown, Gesner, Ray, Linnaeus, Rundelicious, Willoughby, Green, Artidi, Sibold, Brisson, Martin, Lassépède, Bonterre, Desmarest, Baron Cuvier, Frederick Cuvier, John Hunter, Owen, Scoresby, Beale, Bennett, J. Ross Brown, the author of Miriam Coffin, Olmsted, and the Reverend T. Cheever. But to what ultimate generalizing purpose all these have written, the above cited extracts will show. 
Of the names in this list of whale authors, only those following Owen ever saw living whales, and but one of them was a real professional harpooner and whaleman. I mean Captain Scoresby. On the separate subject of the Greenland or right whale, he is the best existing authority, but Scoresby knew nothing and says nothing of the great sperm whale, compared with which the Greenland whale is almost unworthy mentioning. And here be it said that the Greenland whale is a usurper upon the throne of the seas. He is not even by any means the largest of the whales. Yet, owing to the long priority of his claims and the profound ignorance which, till some seventy years back, invested the then fabulous or utterly unknown sperm whale, and which ignorance to this present day still reigns in all but some few scientific retreats and whale ports, this usurpation has been every way complete. Reference to nearly all the leviathanic allusions in the great poets of past days will satisfy you that the Greenland whale, without one rival, was to them the monarch of the seas. But the time has at last come for a new proclamation. This is Charing Cross, hear ye, good people all. The Greenland whale is deposed. The great sperm whale now reigneth. There are only two books in which at all pretend to put the living sperm whale before you, and at the same time, in the remotest degree, succeed in the attempt. Those books are Beale's and Bennett's, both in their time surgeons to English South Sea whale ships, and both exact and reliable men. The original matter touching the sperm whale to be found in their volumes is necessarily small, but so far as it goes, it is of excellent quality, though mostly confined to scientific description. As yet, however, the sperm whale, scientific or poetic, lives not complete in any literature. Far above all other hunted whales, his is an unwritten life.